His sermon text is Ephesians 5:22 through 33. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 978. Hear the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me this morning? Now, Father, in our time together, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Over the past eight years of pastoral ministry that I've been able to do some here and some at my previous church I've officiated, I went back and counted up, I think it's 15 weddings, including three couples who are in this room. Beyond that, Laura and I, we've done premarital counseling for many of those couples and others beyond that. We've loved doing that. So I'll admit to you that this is the first sermon that I've ever preached in the context of a church on Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, but I've been blessed to spend lots of time in it charging brides and grooms, helping people think about it for a decade. And I I love this passage. I I love being able to speak to couples and to people at weddings from it. I also know, and and you probably know some people who honestly either struggle, who struggle with this text, and it it may be an honest kind of struggle with this, uh, or people who downright despise it. After officiating a wedding from this passage, a former coworker of mine was accosted by a member of the bride's family for teaching this. Uh, I know of a church that forbids the reading of this passage in their weddings. It's in their wedding policy manual that you can't read this passage at their weddings. And even beyond those, beyond people who are actively maybe opposed or who don't like the teaching of this passage, there are Brothers and sisters, faithful men and women who struggle, who read this passage and because of past experiences, maybe current conditions, they they wonder how this plays out in their life. 
And my, my hope this morning, I want to address maybe some of those concerns. We will, we will get there. But what I've really been praying for you, for, for us and our time together is not, not only that the Holy Spirit would convince us that this text is true. I want that. More than that, what I really hope we see is that this text is meant to be beautiful. It is meant to be embraced and is meant as a gift from God to his people. So if you want the main point of this passage there on your notes, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 teaches this. Our marriages as husband and wife are intended to portray the marriage of Christ and the church. And we'll kind of see that play out as we walk through the passage. And we'll just look at a couple of marriages that we see unfold. And what we'll begin with is this first marriage, the marriage of Christ and his church. Uh, I rented a book from the library this week, a cookbook that somebody had recommended to me. And I, uh, I, my, this is how I do cookbooks. I just immediately like flip to the recipes to see what happens. This cookbook is like teaching you how to cook in the first half. And I just went straight to the recipes. And the first thing it said there is, if you just flip to these pages, you're doing this book wrong. Go back and read everything that came before it. Learn to be a chef, to be a cook, to learn all the things that go into this. And I want to make sure when we get to this passage, we're going to talk to husbands and wives. We're going to talk about that. I don't want us to just kind of flip by and get to all the nitty gritty practical stuff and not say, here's here's the pattern. Here's the the teaching, the thing that's underlying those commands. So we're going to start by looking at this. I think that this is really the theological basis and the climax of this passage is looking at Christ in the church. And that's clear in verses 30 through 32. So if you have your Bibles, you can look down there. Paul there encourages husbands to love their wives as their own body, to nourish and cherish their, as, their wife as Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. And in verse 30, he says that Christ does this. He nourishes and cherishes his body, the, the church, because we are members of his body. And then he does this thing. He, he quotes Not just like the teaching of Jesus, but he actually goes way, way, way back to Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And in the context of Genesis, that clearly speaks to the union that is enjoyed by a husband and a wife. And that's not wrong. That's good, right teaching, and Paul is not denying that. He's actually drawing on that in this passage. But he's saying that more is happening. He's saying that more was happening even in Genesis, when God created this thing called marriage. Look at verse 32, that's what he says. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, the original masterpiece of marriage... If you want to think, what is the perfect marriage? It was not the one that God created of that in Adam and Eve. The original primal love story is between Christ and his church. That's what God intended when he created marriage. It's not just an after-the-fact thing like, hey, this happens to line up really well. God made marriage so that we can see the gospel. That's what this is saying in Genesis 2.24. That is the primary foundational love story that ours, our marriages, are intended to reflect. 
And it is this love story, really, that drives the plot of the whole Bible. So kids, uh, and even adults, the Bible, sometimes we can come to it, and this is how I approached the Bible. For many years, I thought the Bible was a really good book of rules that if I wanted to live well, I could follow these rules. And, and I, I don't want to downplay that. Okay, the Bible is full of rules, and the, the rules are meant, they're intended to help us know how to live as God wants us, and the way that it works best in the world. But the Bible is not primarily about these rules. Uh, the Bible has lots of stories about heroes. Maybe your favorite is David and Goliath. Maybe it's Daniel and the lion's den. You could go back to all sorts of stories, and those are great. But almost all the heroes in the Bible that we find, if you just keep reading after the heroic triumph, you'll find that they're flawed, that they're like me and you. And maybe we should follow them, but the Bible is not ultimately pointing us to these heroes, these characters that we want to look at. Kids, maybe, maybe you've heard this quote before. We've read this book in our home, but this is a quote from a, a story Bible meant for kids. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. So listen, listen into this. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories, all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And here in our passage, we see this Bible-spanning love story told over the course of just a few verses. It starts with a man, Christ, who loves his bride, the church And his great love comes first. If you remember back to the very beginning of Ephesians, when we looked at Ephesians 1, this is what we see in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Do you remember? In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. It was his love that comes first. And what makes this love story grand not just like a, a rom-com or something that we go find, is that he loves people who are not lovely in themselves. Right? The whole history of the Old Testament shows over and over a people who are bent, bent on rebellion and self-destruction in so many ways. But God's love is settled. It is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. That's the kind of love we see in Christ. And ultimately, he shows the extent of his love. We see even in this passage, in verse 25 and 23, he shows the extent of his love as he goes to the cross and gives himself up for his people. In our rebellion against God, what we're told throughout the Bible is that we have earned only one thing. We've earned death. But Christ gave himself. He loved us. And gave himself as our savior. Not when we had cleaned ourselves up enough. But an overflow of glory and grace towards his people. He died in our place paying the penalty of death that we deserved. And in the beauty of the gospel he rises from the dead with an indestructible life. 
And he gives that life to his people. And this is really important. Okay, this love story is not just about a husband who has been cheated on forgiving his wife and then walking away. That can be, that can be a story of forgiveness. This is more. This is the husband who gives himself and who brings his bride to himself and unites together with them again. He is the head of the body, the church. He, our groom, has taken us to himself. And in this, he purifies us, he nourishes us, he cherishes us, all for the purpose so that on the final day, if you look around and say, you know what, I'm not as pure as I want to be, the goal that Christ is driving to is that one day he will present you to himself pure, unblemished, spotless, without wrinkle. God in his mercy is driving all of history towards this end. And so our response then, if we are the bride, if we are the church, and you see the husband, the groom doing that, then we say, yes, Lord. We will follow wherever you go. Whatever he is doing for us is born out of love and done for our good. And we follow lovingly and willingly wherever he leads Friends, this gospel of Christ pursuing the church, this is the foundational, the the original and perfect love story. And so every marriage, all of your marriages, before we get to what does it look like in ours, this is what it revolves around. This is what it's meant to reflect. And if you're here with us this morning and you're you're visiting, we're really glad that you're here. I'm grateful that you you've decided to join us this morning. Uh, I know that people come and visit churches for a variety of reasons. I, I hope, uh, my hope at least, is that local churches and even our church would still have a reputation that we care for healthy marriages. We want to see marriages thrive. And, and so it's possible. I know people who come to church because they, they say, you know what, I'm, there's relational struggle and this is, this is the place I know to go. Praise God. We, we hope that you can have a better marriage. We believe that and we're, we are on your side, in your corner for that. But you should know that the primary message that we teach, the thing that is ultimate in our minds, the thing we want to point to above better marriages, is that we serve and submit to and follow an amazing Savior. And so we want you to know. If you want to come and, and say, I need help in my marriage, we'd love to walk with you through that. But if you say, you know, that I, I want help in my marriage, but I actually don't understand what's happening with Christ and the church all that well, we really want to help you understand that. And if you have not given your life, if you have not seen your life as that is, that is subject to Christ, that he came and died for his people, we would call and invite you today. You can turn and submit to him. You can be forgiven of your sin, purified, washed clean, made into the bride of Christ, into a member of his body. If you have questions about what that looks like, I'll be here after service. I would love to talk to you. If you came here with a Christian friend, if you know somebody else at this church that you know is a Christian, you could talk to anybody here. We would love to talk to you about what it looks like to walk with Christ as our head and lovingly follow him. The marriage, uh, this marriage of Christ and the church, this is God's original masterpiece. This is the original work of art. It's the one that stands supreme over everything. But God does intend our marriages, the marriages of believers, 
to be uh, to be little reproductions of this work of art, to be like prints that you go buy in the gift shop at the art store, art store museum. That's what it's called. You go buy a print. We have that and say this is just pointing back to this original. And so we see this reflected in our marriages as husbands and wives. Now, uh, you may have guessed this, but the bulk of the rest of this sermon is going to be directed to those who are married. And I know that we have brothers and sisters in this room who are not married, whether you're single or widowed or divorced. We're glad here. I hope that you'll tune in as well, because at the very least, I, I hope that this can inform the way that you are praying for others and the way that they're married. Uh, the way that if your married friends come to talk to you and seek counsel from you, that you can encourage them with the scripture, not just your own good ideas. And, and friends who are single, you can encourage married people from the Bible on marriage. This is your text too. So we, we married couples, we love for you to be involved in our lives, to love us, to help us. In this way, so uh, I hope that you you can listen in, even if a lot of the rest of the sermon is addressed towards husbands and wives. So Paul begins here by saying, "Wives, submit to your husbands, as the church submits to Christ." And I want to get at this idea by looking at three words that I think need definition here, need some clarity, and that I think can bring clarity to what Paul is talking about. I also think that these three words are some of the words that people object to the most and have the most trouble with. So I want to try to just provide some clarity in what Paul is doing here. And that first word is there in verse 22, is the word submit. Now some here accuse Paul of being uh, derivative. Okay, so there, there are, at this same time, other household codes going around. You can go find people telling husbands and wives what it looks like to live a married life. And some people will accuse Paul of saying, you know what, Paul is just kind of ripping off these and he's saying just the same thing that other people were saying at the time. He's just trying to not rock the boat. Uh, I Let me just read some of these to you because I think that I, I disagree with that kind of uh, accusation. So tell me, I'm going to read a few of these. You tell me if this sounds like Paul. Okay, so here's what Aristotle uh, in his book called Politics wrote. He says, again, as between the sexes, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior, the male ruler and the female subject. For it is a part of the household science to rule over wife and children. For the male is by nature better fitted to command than the female. Or listen to, uh, to Jewish historian Josephus. The woman, says the law, is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be submissive. Not for her humiliation, but that she may be directed. Let me just, you may have already heard it, but let me just point out two, I think, stark differences. So people who say Paul is just riffing off of other people, I don't think they have read these, honestly. So two stark differences that stand out. First, this this is maybe a little bit more subtle. But who are these other household codes addressed to? They're, They're addressed to men, they're, they're written to men on how to conduct their households. So wives are, are referred to, but they're actually not addressed directly. And in contrast here, the scriptures speak directly to wives in the congregation. Paul addresses them, not, not just like there's some, some objects on the outside that you men, you've got to figure out what to do with them. He actually calls on wives and says, you are a sister in Christ. 
And you willfully, lovingly submit to your husband. This is, you are a subject who is giving yourself. You're not forcibly subjected by someone outside. And then the second, maybe the thing that you hear most clearly, the, the groundwork, kind of the foundation of submission in those other texts, those other household codes, you heard a couple times, it's grounded in what's seen as inferiority and superiority. Men are superior, women are inferior. And the Bible, just if, please listen very clearly, the Bible says nothing of the sort like that. The Bible is very clear. Men and women both are created equally in the image of God. There is, throughout the scripture, no hint of inferiority on the part of women or wives. The grounding that Paul gives is what we just talked about. It's not women are inferior and therefore they should submit. It's that women are given the high and holy calling of picturing the church. They're intended by God to show a picture of the church and submitting themselves to Christ. So we, we should. I hope when you hear the word submit and you kind of cower back from that or you hear people say, that's a terrible thing. Remember, Submission in Ephesians 5 is not a call for a lower, inferior being to obey a superior one. We've seen it. It's a loving, willful submission. A submission meant to paint a portrait of Christ in the church. It's not dehumanizing or demeaning. It's not meant to be life-taking, but life-giving. The second word to talk about here is in verse 23. It says there, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, in the context of this passage and really in Ephesians as a whole, this word head brings an idea of, of leadership and authority. So back in Ephesians 1.22, if you want to just jot that reference down and look back at how Paul uses it, Ephesians 1.22, Paul says that Jesus was raised from the dead. He's seated above every other power for all of time. And then he says, God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. And in the structure of a family that God has set up, there is a particular responsibility, a particular leadership role given to a husband. And a wife's call in this text is to recognize that and to honor her husband in loving, respectful submission to him. Now, a quick word to husbands here, or those who talk to husbands here. I'll I'll talk more about this later, but if you walk away from the sermon and you hear, I am the head of my wife, and that's all that you hear, one, you're not listening to this sermon very well. Two, be really careful. Be really careful that you understand what this headship means and what it entails. This is not a license to always get your way. If you're in an argument and you say, I'm the head so that you can get your way without taking into consideration your wife, you're using that wrongly. This is not a call to always get your way. It's a call to lovingly lead your wife. In commenting on the leadership a husband has In his home, Clinton Arnold, he's a New Testament scholar, he reminds us and says this. Ultimately, the principal vision for leadership that Christ presents in the Gospels, in other words, the picture that Jesus gives us of leadership, is servant leadership. 
In contrast to the prevalent cultural tendency for men to rule with tyranny, Jesus modeled a caring and self-denying form of leadership. He told his disciples, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Headship, men, is a call to service and not to self-fulfillment. And lest you take this lightly, Pastor Kent Hughes, he reminds us of kind of the weightiness of what this entails. He says there, indeed, both husband and wife bear mutual responsibility. But he, the husband, by his position, stands in the way of greater judgment. Headship is a fearful thing. So when a husband makes difficult decisions, he should do so with the full counsel of his wife. And he should do so with great humility and dependence on the Lord. Realizing his fallibility and responsibility. Headship involves immense responsibility. Finally, we should talk at least briefly about this short phrase in verse 24. Wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And to kind of put a really fine point on this, so what is this question about? uh, Does this mean that no matter what a husband asks his wife to do, she must obey? Well, the, the short answer is no. There, you can think of perhaps other situations. Maybe the obvious one is that wives have a, a higher authority than your husband. Right? Our, our ultimate authority is the Lord Jesus, is Christ himself. You should not submit in following your husband into sin, just as an example. So think about uh, Acts chapter 5. Right? Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, they sell some property. They, they agree to not tell the full truth to the apostles. The husband, Ananias, goes in, lies to the Holy Spirit, uh, dies. And then Sapphira, his wife, goes in to the apostles. And she goes along with the plan. She lies to the Holy Spirit and she's judged and dies as well. She's not commended and said, you know what, you are submitting to kind of the way that you and your husband agreed to do this. No, she should have resisted, should have obeyed the Lord, told the truth. So this verse 24 of obey in, of, of be subject in everything isn't calling for slavish obedience in every single wish. This is a call for wives to have a general posture, a general posture of glad submission in every area of life. So it's, it's not right, it's, it's good to say, you know what, I'm going to follow my husband in, in what he wants us to do spiritually. But it's not right to say, my financial decisions, I'm going to kind of hide and sequester off here to the side. That, that thing, that little realm belongs to me and not to, to us, to him. Or that he gets no say in how to raise kids or how to spend our time. And now husbands, I'm, I'm not saying that you have a blank check here, just to re-emphasize that. Husbands, we, we do well, we should recognize frequently that we are fallible people, that we make mistakes, and that God has given our wives, their believers, the Holy Spirit, and that they have lots of wisdom. So this is not just run over and get your way. We should listen carefully to the God-given wisdom of our wives. But, but the word to wives is to have your general bent towards following the loving leadership of your husband. So putting, putting this together, wives, you have an immense responsibility. You have an immensely important call to be a living, breathing picture of what the church looks like in her loving response to Christ. 
So, so your loving and willful submission to your husband as the one who has given the responsibility of leading your home in love, that is an evangelistic help for us. That is an evangelistic help because it paints a portrait for all of us, men and women, married and single, to see how we should be following the loving leadership of Christ. Now, after addressing wives, Paul turns to husbands. And here he says something that, that maybe you, you may have heard this so many times, this is not surprising. This is actually a pretty surprising command. He turns to husbands and says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, I mentioned those household codes earlier. Here, here's why. If you were living in Ephesus and you heard this read, this would be a shocking kind of command. Because all of those other household codes, they say, wives submit, husbands rule. And that's kind of the, that's the, the totality of what they say. And, and Paul doesn't do away with kind of the authority structure here. Okay? He's not total, totally jettisoning that. But if, we, if you want to summarize this, it's not husbands, uh, wives submit, husbands rule. It's wives submit and husbands love. That is the emphasis of this text towards husbands. And the clear emphasis on here is this loving character. And in light of the example that we have in Christ, this love takes on a particular shape. So it's not just love kind of as you envision love. It's love as Christ loved the church. So so husbands, your love for your wife, it will take on initiative. Romans 5, 8 tells us God loves uh, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us so in Jesus's immense mercy he did not come and take your place when you were really cleaned up when you had a lot to offer to him Christ in love moved towards his bride even when his bride was difficult to love and husbands you are called to picture this so when you withhold affection or support or encouragement from your wife because she did something to annoy you. Maybe even she did something that was uh, downright disrespectful at a time. And you just say, I'm going to teach her by kind of withholding from her. You're painting a picture of Jesus. But you're not painting the right picture. Jesus is the one who moves forward towards his bride. Even when it's painful, even when it's hard. He takes the initiative to move towards her. So husbands, die to yourself and take initiative in loving your wives. Husbands, your love for your wife will require sacrifice. You are not your wife's savior. Okay, Gratefully, Jesus is the one who dies on the cross and purifies your bride. But you are called to have a kind of love that involves self-sacrifice. I imagine, so I, I can be a daydreamer. Uh, Laura can, I can, I can be thinking of something in my head and I just kind of start in a conversation with Laura, imagining that we've been having a long conversation and as, that she can pick up midway through when she hasn't been in my head thinking through this stuff. So I, I'm a daydreamer and uh, frequently, maybe this is you husbands, you, maybe you've d- daydreamed about a scenario in which you say, I, if this thing ever happened, I, I would be willing to die for my bride. I would give up my life to save her. And my family. And I hope that's the case. I hope that you're, uh, that I, I don't hope that's the case. I hope that if that happens, that would be the case. That you would be willing to give your life for your bride. But 
But we should acknowledge that kind of thing where a husband physically dies to save his wife is a very rare thing indeed. Much more frequently, and the thing that all of you husbands in this room have to do and probably have already had to do today, is to die to yourself. Die to your desire to get your way to do things and be to be the one who is constantly being served. It may be easier to daydream about how we could give our lives in these really heroic waves for our wives. It's much harder to actually die to yourself and go help with bedtime with the kids. Or to, to die to yourself and maybe work a job that you don't even like so that you can provide for your family. To die to yourself and give up a hobby that you love but that just takes so much time away from nourishing and cherishing your spouse. Husbands, we, we paint a picture of Christ, a good picture of Christ, every time we sacrifice to show our wives that we love her more than we love ourselves. Husbands, your love for your wife will seek to do her spiritual good. Will seek to do her spiritual good. Verses 26 and 27 in here, it gives kind of three purpose statements for which Jesus gave himself for the church. So Christ gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus died so that he could set apart his people. And he is still working even today to beautify and to perfect us. And husbands, it is your goal for your wife the same goal that Jesus has for your wife. Are you pretty content to have a harmonious marriage with comfortable living arrangements and some good memories, fun times? Those are good things. It's not, it's fine to, to love your wife in that way, to make good memories, to have fun times. Those aren't bad in themselves, but those are far too short if that is your ultimate aim, husbands. The aim of Christ in coming for his bride is to make us pure, to make us perfect. God desires for your wife not just to be happy, but to be holy. And so how are you going in that same direction? Are you, husbands, praying specifically for your wife every single day? Are you exercising your role as a leader by spiritually encouraging her, by nourishing her with the water of the word? Just remember that if you are the head of your wife, this is what we talked about, headship being a weighty thing. If you are the head in your house, you have a particular responsibility for the trajectory of your family. And you will give an account to God one day on how you have exercised this role. You will give an account. So give yourself to doing spiritual good for your bride. And lastly, husbands, your care, your love for your wife will be characterized by tenderness and by care. Okay, this is where kind of Paul draws out this, this other metaphor starting in verse 28 of the head and the body. And he says husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And on the one hand, he's, he's really just taking the second great commandment, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And he's applying that to marriage. He's saying, husbands, your wife is your neighbor. Don't forget that. If you do a really good job, if you pray for the nations every day, if you go on mission trips, if you're kind of contemplating how you can share the gospel with your neighbors and you're 
not seeing your wife as the one you love, you have just a severe case of farsightedness. You're seeing all the things out there and you're just forgetting the thing that's, that's right here, the primary task that the Lord has given to you. So Paul's just saying, love, love your wife as yourself, as your own body. That's the second great commandment, but he's also kind of just taking the metaphor that he has used of Christ in the church. And he's saying this, this applies in the same way to husbands and wives. So Christ is the head of the church, his body, and husbands are the head of the wife, his body. And it's natural for a head to love its own body, to do what it means to take care for it. So in the same way, husbands, you are called, these are key words, to nourish and cherish your wives. You are more than just like business partners. It is easier for me to live with someone else. Uh, we get along nicely and we're just kind of coast along. You're, you're more than just business partners in something trying to get through life. You're called to give yourself, to know your wife well. To do what it takes for her flourishing. To provide for her. Your love for your wife should be characterized by this kind of tenderness and care. And for both husbands and wives, these are high callings. And if you feel, right now even, that this is weighty and too much for you, let me just remind you, we read this verse, these verses earlier, but this all flows out of what we see in verse 18. So you look back up in Ephesians 5, 18. And you'll remember that we are not to be foolish, but to be filled with the Spirit. We shouldn't take these as things that we're just kind of told, hey, husbands, wives, get out there, do better, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can do this. Now, friends, it's not a fight that we're doing by ourselves. Brothers and sisters, you're filled with the Spirit. You could be under His influence. He is the one operating in you. You are not fighting for your marriage alone. God Himself has a stake in your marriage. He actually wants it to thrive more than you do. He wants the picture of Christ in the church to be magnified in all the world. So if you feel like this is too much and I cannot do it, know, not just that you're strong enough, because you're not, but know that Christ and His Spirit is, and He is with you to carry this out. Now, I, I would love, I'm really tempted to paint this positive, to paint kind of a positive picture of marriage and just leave it there. But, um, but we, we live in a world where you can just kind of look around or maybe even look at your own marriage from time to time and see that, you know, the, the, origi- the original kind of masterpiece, this print that should be reflecting that is not very good. Uh, it's got smudges, it's ripped, it's torn. We live in a fallen world and we do see that there are fractured marriages. So you may have some other questions about how this works out. I just want to uh, work through three of these and I'll try to be as quick, uh, as brief as I can. But the, this one I, I want to address first because I think it's the most painful of these questions. And I want to be very clear here. Okay, so the, this question is, what if my spouse is abusive? Uh, in, in 2015, the Charleston Post and Courier won a Pulitzer Prize for a sobering series of articles uh, on domestic abuse. 
And they, they point out, kind of over this series, multiple factors that feed into patterns of abuse. But one of their articles has this, this subtitle to the headline. Tradition, pride, religion, patriarchy. A dangerous mix for Bible Belt women and their relationships. And their argument is that the combination of, of a deeply held religious belief in the sanctity of marriage, combined with beliefs about a woman's place in the home, are factors that have led to an increase in domestic violence in South Carolina at that time. And I do, I want to be very careful here, because I, I my temptation sometimes is to hear objections like that and to run away. Or to claim media bias. Or do something and just kind of close my, my ears. But friends, we, we do, we, we can do better than that. One, we, we don't need to be, I don't think we need to be afraid of these kinds of things coming out. I don't want you to be afraid of those. And more than that, more importantly than that, we cannot be calloused towards real people who have undergone abuse at the hands of religious fools. So, first to the argument. To the argument that texts like this enable abuse, we should respond by pinpointing the problem. It's why I bring this up here after walking through this text. I think it's clear, I hope that it's clear, that the problem does not reside in Scripture. The Bible does, the Bible does speak of the sanctity of marriage. It does speak of a husband having leadership, authority in their home. But the Bible speaks of this and emphasizes this as one of love. The command to husbands is not to rule but to love. So if the problem is not in the Bible, then it lies in people. And what I would say are religious fools who yank Bible verses from context and use them as bludgeons instead of reading the Bible and using it as blessings. So let me just remind you, do not read or teach. The husband is the head of the wife without going on to look at the commands that husbands are to love their wives. Give themselves as Christ does for the church. Pastor Kent Hughes says it this way and just resonated with, with what I see here. God's holy word in the hands of a religious fool can do immense harm. So we should do everything possible. We should do everything possible to make sure that we are not religious fools and that we're not training more. A quick word to husbands here. If you abuse your authority to the detriment of or harm of your wife, know that you are in grave, grave sin. You, you are painting a portrait. You're painting a picture of King Jesus not as loving, kind, Generous, gentle, and lowly, but of an abusive monster. And you will one day stand before this king. You will stand before him and give an account for how you have used that authority. Be wary. If you, husband, if you are in sin, repent. Repent to your wife. Repent to come to find an elder. And repent of that. And then wives, if you are in an abusive relationship, there is no circumstance, no circumstance under which your husband should be allowed to hurt you in that way. And so I would urge you to come talk to an elder here. And we're, we're not just saying we're, we'll just handle this internally. We will help you contact the proper authorities who need to be talked to to keep you safe. 
And if you're not comfortable coming to talk to Kyle or David or myself or Corey, come find a a trusted friend at this church and, and bring this to the light. But know that the elders of this church, your pastors, we are called, one of our callings is to guard the flock and to protect it. And we take that call seriously, dear sisters. Now, there's a a second question that I'll go to quickly. And this is, what if my spouse is not a Christian? Okay, Do I still have to live out these obligations if I'm in a marriage where my spouse is not a Christian? And Paul doesn't specifically address this, but Peter does. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So if, if you're married to someone who's not a Christian, or maybe, maybe in this church you're thinking of getting counsel, you have friends who are coming to you who are in that situation, know that this text applies there too. So husbands, if you're a believer and your wife is not, your ultimate goal, the thing you want is for your spouse to know the Lord, your evangelistic tool, one of them is to give yourself to loving her. You're painting a picture of Jesus for her. And wives, this is a place where I think there is an immense amount of wisdom needed. I would encourage you to find a sister in the Lord to walk through this with you, or if you're counseling somebody in this, to help them know what this may look like. But the Bible is clear here in First Peter. Even your posture of loving, willing submission to your husband, God uses that, sister. God uses that and can transform the heart of your husband without a word. When he sees that and says, something is different in you, and I don't know what it is, but I want to know more about it. Final question here. What if my spouse is not fulfilling his or her role? So you say, I, I hear this. This is, this is the danger of these kind of sermons, right? Um, you can hear this and think, I'm going to resend this to my spouse on Wednesday. Don't do that. That's not the first thing to do. Okay, so if you think, you know, I'm, I'm doing all right, but my, my spouse, I'm glad they're here. The first thing that this text would tell you to do is examine yourself, okay? Don't just think, I'm glad they're hearing it. What is it that I, where am I falling short in this? Okay, take the, the log out of your own eye before removing the speck in your brother or sister. That's, that's the Bible, that's Luke and Jesus. So that's the first thing. If, if after that, if you say, I'm still struggling, I, I just don't know that our marriage is functioning like this, like I want it to. The next person you talk to is God, and you should actually talk to him while you're doing the first step. Talk to God. Pray this text over your marriage. Lord, help me to be a picture of the church in loving submission to Christ, and help my husband to be one who leads and loves like Christ does the church. Or vice versa, pray for your spouse. Talk to the Lord first. And then your next responsibility is, and this may be difficult, I know, but is to talk to your spouse, to have a conversation with them. That may be hard, but give your spouse the benefit of the doubt. They want to walk faithfully with the Lord. Speak the truth in love with them. And finally, just know again, this church is committed to having marriages that look like this, and we want to help. So if you need to, come find an elder. I would not encourage you maybe to go find your best friend who's going to just always say, you know what, you're right and uh, the other, your spouse is wrong. Find somebody who's willing and loves you enough to actually tell you, actually, you have some things you need to work on. This isn't a call to come complain to people, but a call to say we, we want our marriages to reflect this. 
So if you do say, we, we need help here, come find us. We're, the elders are glad to talk to you or help find a biblical counselor, someone who knows the word and loves it and can help you walk in this. Brothers and sisters, looking at these commands, I'm sure it falls on you in a variety of ways. Your marriage can be across a huge spectrum of where it is today. So for those of you who hear this and you are joyful because you are just enjoying a good place in marriage, rejoice, praise God. Okay, you don't have to hear this and automatically think, I need, I'm beaten down. You can give great praise to the Lord for seasons of wonderful enjoyment in a marriage that pay, plays this out. If you hear this and you feel inadequate, if you hear the commands and the main thing you feel is the weight of the commands, remember, you are not working this by yourself. You're working it with a group of brothers and sisters who are on your team. And you're working ultimately with the spirit inside of you, working for your good. If you hear hear these commands and you feel guilty, like you've not lived up to the calling you have, know that the picture we have of Jesus, even in this text, is one who runs to his bride and who gives himself for her. You can be forgiven. Repent, confess, and find the assurance of pardon that Christ has given for you. And if you feel lonely, if you feel lonely because you want to be married and you're not, or maybe you feel lonely because you're in a marriage and you don't feel connected to your spouse, know that marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is intended as a good gift, but it is not the ultimate reality. Christ, our husband, he is the one who is closer than a brother or a sister or a husband or a wife. And he is with you. And he will never abandon his people. I, I love a good wedding. I'm, I'm literally like inches from the front. It's great. I like officiating weddings. I love getting to reflect on the mystery of what's going on in this of a man and a woman becoming one flesh of that pointing and portraying Christ. But I usually leave weddings with longing. I've even started kind of instructing people after my marriage. Hey, would you pray for these people. I long for this husband and this wife to paint a portrait of the gospel, of gospel faithfulness. And I long for that, and I long also ultimately for the day when the portrait that we're all pointing to, when that comes about, when finally we don't just have to look at our faint copies. We actually see the masterpiece face to face as our groom, Christ, comes to his bride and we come to him. So we'll close with Revelation 19, 6 and 7. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your word We thank you and we do pray, even as Anita prayed earlier, we pray for marriages in this room. We pray that you would help us to paint faithful pictures of Christ's love for his church and the church's loving, willing submission to Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would come back quickly and that all of of our faint portraits, that we would see the masterpiece in glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.